Welcome into the conversation. It's your occasional host, Adrian Lawrence. And today's guest is Oton Nolasco, the co-founder of Know Us Without You. That's a nonprofit charity that provides food security for undocumented back of house staff and their families in the LA area. So Oton, undocumented immigrants, they make up roughly 10% of the state's entire workforce. And the undocumented hospitality workers are the backbone of our hospitality industry. Why is there such a pressing need to support them? You know, in Los Angeles, several chef friends that I've spoken to, the number is probably closer to 70 to 75% undocumented staff back of the house. You know, it's important because they're not eligible for any for any unemployment, any stimulus checks, uh, even though they pay into the system every week through their paycheck, they get taxed, but they're not able to recoup any benefits during this pandemic shutdown. Wow, that's incredible. The thought that you are eligible to pay taxes, but you're not eligible yeah. to get any money back when you're in need. Um, yeah, that's a definite problem. And so what are the services that you provide? Uh, primarily, the, the primary focus is gonna be food security. Uh, we we're able to feed a family of four for one week for $33. Um, we are providing over 100 pounds of food for every family. Um, we also have job placement, uh, tutoring. We are also feeding uh, our neighborhood that our office is located in Bull Heights in a suburb of Los Angeles. That's fantastic. It must feel so incredibly rewarding to know that you are changing everybody's lives and also being of such service right now during this global pandemic where a lot of people are out of work, especially with all these restaurants shut down. What's the feedback that you're getting from the community you're helping? I mean, to be completely honest, they'd rather not have us provide food security. They they wanna go back to work. They're used to working two to three jobs. This is a very hardworking people, they're, they're not, they're not always comfortable with our assistance, but they know it's necessary right now just till they are able to you know, get even a few shifts a week at some of the restaurants that are open. So um, yeah, if they had it their way, they would just like to go back to pre-pandemic days of, of working two to three jobs. Yeah, well, I definitely can tell you that they are not alone in that sentiment. It's been very difficult on pretty much so many of us who right. are not able to fulfill our purpose. Um, but I'd love to also talk about what really inspired you to start a program like this. Uh, you know, my partners and I, uh, we are uh, in our former lives, we're bar and restaurant consultants. So when, when the shutdown, when we saw it looming, uh, we knew right away that the people in the back of the house were gonna be the most impacted. Um, and we really worried about them because, you know, my partner Damian Diaz and I, we've often only ate one time. Uh, one time a day uh, while working, operating bars and restaurants. And it was always the undocumented back of house workers that would make us a plate of family meal and, and literally make us sit down to eat. So we, we got upset that we saw a lot of GoFundMe starting um, that were focused on the front of the house, you know, the wait staff, the bartenders, the people you see. And we knew that these people were gonna be in really bad financial shape if this was gonna last any amount of time that they were predicting. Absolutely, and I'd like to think as well, given your background working in the bar service industry, that you probably had a lot of valuable skills that you were able to use to really make this come to fruition. How did your background help you be able to essentially start this incredible project where you are serving people's needs, making sure they have food, making sure they have services? 
I mean, it's a little translation. Uh, our skill set is just transferring over to this business, and we treat it as a business. You know, the families we serve our guests. We're very fortunate that the uh, about dozen or so volunteers that we have are very close friends, uh, former coworkers. They're all bartenders and chefs, and they've ran restaurants and bars, and they know how to be hospitable, how to treat people and, and not only worry about their, their health and their safety, but also their dignity and to treat everyone as a paying guest, if you will. Um, so I, we couldn't do it without our amazing volunteer staff. Uh, they, it's just, it's so seamless. If you could w- watch us operate, we've learned so much in the last seven months on how to just constantly improve our systems to, to become more efficient and just make sure that everyone's taken care of. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know, with No Us Without You, I understand it was launched in about mid-March, correct? March 19th, yes. Wow, wow, and that was at the height of things, kind of starting to do this shutdown setup. And I know your goal, it was to mm-hmm. kind of feed 30 families a week, but now you're feeding over a thousand families a week. That's huge, man. Yeah, it started off with 10 families that we knew that we had worked with for years. And we just went to a restaurant supply company and spent our own money, loaded up our truck. And, and fed 10 families the first day and then another 10 the next day. And yeah, now we're over 1300 families a week that we're providing food security for. I mean, that's, that's over, you know, that's close to 5,000 people a week that we're responsible for in terms of food security. Oh, wow, that just must feel so good to know that you're making such an impact in people's lives. And so if you can tell me, maybe if you can pinpoint one or sure. two things um, what do you attribute to being the reason you've been so successful to reach and connect with so many people? I would say honestly that everyone that we know and love and respect in our hospitality industry has helped us at one time or another uh, grow and succeed when we didn't have you know, refrigeration space. Our good friend Cindy at Crafted Kitchen made sure that we had all the space available that we needed. Um, every, every chef that we've worked with or had the pleasure of dining with has helped us either providing, uh, you know, Chef Antonio from Dama called us and said, hey, like, come clean out the, the kitchen, take all the dry goods, take all the beans, take all the rice, all the tortillas, anything you guys need, we're not going to use it, like, take it, feed the people. So we've just been fortunate to, we're, we're not rich, we're not rich people, but we have uh, a lot of wealth and friends. So we're, we're fortunate to, to have been taken taken into um, you know this journey with really good friends. Uh, well, you're definitely rich with love and support, and that is something that goes very very far, especially right now in this pandemic. And speaking of someone else that's pretty rich, uh, state of California. In April, uh, California <sighs> Governor Gavin Newsom he announced that they'd be giving some 150,000 undocumented workers uh, stimulus checks. 500 to the individual, 1,000 to the families as part of a $125 million stimulus package. But the reality is that ain't enough. And it's not gonna sustain anybody for months. We all know that. And so I know that getting the resources that from the government and being able to use those would be great. But what would you like to see the government do to provide the support that's necessary? I would just like them to worry about Everyone, regardless of their legal status, if you will, um, you know, so so much of America. If you, if you look at all the news outlets, uh, it's a lot of people that are hurting that need food. 
And it's there's people that have never ever taken any type of you know uh, uh, food charity that are now having to, to do that just to put food on the table. And at the end of the day, we're just uh, humans feeding humans, and we have plans to continue trying to provide food security for anyone that needs it. You know, moving forward, this isn't something that we're going to do part time. We're in it for the long haul. Our 501c3, like this is our new calling. We just want to make sure that people have food. Oh, I love that. And you're absolutely right. That is an incredible message. And I hope more lawmakers will get it and get right with it for sure. And so people can just kind of get to know you a little bit. Other than serving individuals who are in need, what do you do recreationally for fun, especially during a global pandemic? Um, uh, we, you know, we golf, we golf. And this actually idea was kind of born on the golf course. Um, because you're out there by yourself, it's kind of the one thing you can do right now that's socially distant. So we all kind of came to the same conclusion that we needed to do something. So thankfully, golf is in our life. That is a good thing to have golf in your life. I thought you might have said edibles because that's generally the people I talk to. Mm. That's what we're all doing because <laughs> my God, to be able to sustain this current environment that's going on, it's ugh, it's mind blowing. But do you have any plans in particular when it comes up to this election? Any thoughts? Well, you know, we, we've encouraged everyone to vote that, that we know. And I think it's important because right now, America kind of has a president deserves. So hopefully people will take to take to the vote and take it seriously and know that it's not something that it is a civic duty. It's not something we can just not do that day. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. And can you tell you everyone where they can connect with you all, make donations, and really support the effort that you're putting together. Oh, thank you so much for that. So our website is www.knowuswithoutyou.la or Instagram, knowuswithoutyou. And we have a link there to our website. You can donate Venmo, PayPal, everything. Thank you. Yes, and $33 feeds a family of four for one week. One Please week. make that donation. You know, you. giving back, it really feeds the soul. I impose it upon you. Thank you so much, Oton Nalasco. We really appreciate this. Thank you so much and have a great rest of the evening. Thanks for joining us here at The Conversation. It's Adrian Lawrence and I have an incredible guest for you. Terrence Woodbury, a partner at Hit Strategies. That's a messaging and strategy firm that uses innovative research methods to understand, communicate with and mobilize some of the hardest to reach communities in society. Terrence, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Adrian. Happy to be here. Yes, and also, hey, this is a perfect time for you. You study demographics and help people out. And right now, with the election coming, it is all about what groups are resonating with certain candidates. And I know you talk about reaching the least accessible communities. What does that look like? Absolutely. So at Hitchstrat, we focus on three primary audiences. We focus on millennials, on minorities, and on women. We consider that the ascending electorate, right? The rising electorate where most of the change is happening and where uh, and where Democrats have the most opportunity to really gain and, and begin to, uh, to, to reposition themselves, not just in this election, but in, but in future elections as well. And Terrence, why is it so hard to reach these groups? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we do polling and focus groups, and I, I get the luxury and the opportunity to, to sit in focus groups with young voters and diverse voters and women voters every single day. In fact, we just wrapped up some focus groups about five minutes ago that I can't wait to tell you about. 
Um, but you know, the, the fact of the matter is far too often, they're just not reflected in our research. They're not reflected in our polling, they're not reflected in, in the way that we design strategy. And so a part of what we wanted to do here was to give voice to those voters to really uplift their stories, but to connect them to their power, their economic and political power, and, 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 and to help Democratic candidates and progressive candidates better reach these, these hard to reach and high potential voters. We like to call them high potential and not low propensity. All right, well, I definitely can dig that. And I'd love to transition to a voting segment that is getting a fair amount of attention right now, which is black men. In 2016, Trump, he claimed about 14% of the black male vote. And I know he's trying to court the same group pretty aggressively right now. You recently wrote an article about Trump's strategy to win over black men. What's that strategy look like? It's, it, you know, it's interesting, Adrian. Uh, a lot of people started to pay attention to this around the RNC when we saw around the Republican National Convention, when we saw a lot of black men grace the Republican stage. Uh, but for me, I really started to notice that this was a, a part of, uh, of, of Trump's winning strategy during the, the Super Bowl in February, when he spent $11 million on a single 30 second ad for Alice Johnson to be released from prison after 22 years and to come out and say, thank you so much, Donald J. Trump, hallelujah, as she wrapped her arms around her grandchildren for the first time. I knew then with $11 million investment during a program where you have more black men's eyes than any other time of the year. Black men were not just a marginal part of Trump's strategy, they were his path to victory. And ever since then, we've seen him lean in to black men in a unique way, in a way that we have not often seen Republicans do. In fact, just on the issue of criminal justice, we've seen Donald Trump's campaign, his official campaign, Prior to George Floyd's death, his campaign had spent $50,000 on criminal justice ads on Facebook. Since George Floyd's death, he spent $6.6 million on criminal justice Facebook ads. And what's interesting there, Adrian, is not just how much he's spending, it is also the issue that he spends the absolute most on, nothing else even close. It's not just the amount that he's spending, but it's what he's saying in those ads. Democrats failed you. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris failed you, and that is why I signed the First Step Act and started letting black people out of jail. He's really leaning into this strategy, and we're beginning to see some efficacy of it. Wow, that really kind of hits me because that is a huge increase in money for these ads. And I know according to Gallup right now, Trump's approval rating is about eight points higher among black men than it is among black women. And it's also right now where this time of black men who are high profile coming out and partnering with Trump. For instance, Ice Cube, just the other day, we find out that he is working alongside Trump. How is this resonating with potential voters? Well, I think Ice Cube announced that he had reached out to both campaigns and that he was in the process of helping develop agendas for both campaigns. What we have seen is Donald Trump being the master marketer that he is, capitalize on that moment, um, uh, uh, amplify that moment. Uh, because it's, it's for Donald Trump, it's not enough for it to happen if the folks that he's talking to doesn't know what's happening. And that is what we have seen. You know, when I'm in focus groups with black men, and I, it specifically this, uh, this, this uh, margin of black men are considering supporting Trump, and I ask them, 
What is it about Donald Trump that makes you want to support him? Like clockwork, Adrian, they roll off the same three things. He invested in HBCUs, he's letting black folks out of jail, and he had the lowest unemployment rate in, in, in the black community in generations. If you look at any of Donald Trump's ads targeting black people, no matter what they're saying, no matter what his ads say, there's a checklist at the top of it. And the checklist are those three things. That is master marketing. Whether or not those things are actually happening or actually impacting his life, he, they know about it and they can rattle that list off. And so he's achieving his, he's achieving his goal there. Wow, that's kind of interesting in part because I don't necessarily know that those three things are true in the broader sense of how it works. But as you're shaking your head, it may not matter to yes. people who are voting. And in 2016, 54% of eligible black men voted. And so if Biden is hoping to capture that black male vote, what does he need to do? I mean, what's so interesting is that Joe Biden in many ways has put together a very different coalition than the Obama Biden, the Obama Biden coalition, which was anchored by overwhelming support from black voters. And from voters of color, 95, 96, in some places, 98% support for Barack Obama. And what we've seen with the Biden campaign is a very different coalition. His coalition includes a lot of seniors. Joe Biden's winning the majority of voters over 65. Democrats don't win the majority of voters over 65, but Joe Biden is. He's breaking even with white voters. Democrats typically lose the white vote by 20 points. Joe Biden's breaking even. So he's putting together a very different coalition that may not require him to hit 90 or 95% with black men. But what's interesting here is that the down ballot candidates, Democrats attempt to take back the Senate, they are going to require 90 and 95% support from black men. So in places like, like, like North Carolina, Cal Cunningham needs 95% of black folks in North Carolina. In places like Michigan, Gary Peters is running against a black man and his Republican, his Republican opponent in Michigan. He's going to need to run up 95%. And so Democrats, not just Joe Biden, who has put together a pretty solid and diverse winning coalition, Democrats now need to lean in and not just give black men someone to vote against. But they have to give them someone to vote, something to vote for in their down ballot candidates. Indeed, I think I've definitely heard that sentiment echoed across the board with members of the black community feeling like they have no incentive necessarily to vote for a particular candidate. Although I think now Biden is definitely resonating with a number of people and hopefully there will be some valid change. But I know we don't have that much time left and you had mentioned that you had a sample group and you had something you wanted to share about that, please do. Well, you know, as we get closer and closer to this election, I'm beginning to spend more time in our research and our focus groups, understanding how people will react to the outcome of the election. And even more so, what might happen in that uncertain period where we may not know the outcome for a little while. And you know, the damage that this president has done, some of it I think may be irreparable damage that he is doing to the country. And one of them that I didn't expect, but that is very, very, very startling, is that most of the of the young black voters that I just spoke to in this focus group actually anticipate the outcome of this election resulting in violence. Unanimously, everyone in the group expects 
this election to end in violence. And I asked them, have you ever thought that before, that depending on who won or lost, that our country might break out into violence? And they said they never have. And so I'm afraid that what he's inciting, when you tell racist groups to stand back and stand by, when you encourage your supporters to go into inner cities and watch people vote, I'm afraid of that we have to really start to message to our voters, you know, the civility of our elections and how we defend the integrity of our elections without breaking into violence or civil war. That's just not who we are as a nation. Well, hey, who we are as a nation is a very hotly debated issue. And I would say we have a history of a lot of violence and problems, but let's hope there will be no war of 2020. But also, since now we're closing up, I want people to have the opportunity to know where they can catch you. Please tell them where they can find you. Yeah, we release data every day. We release focus group clips and data and findings every day on our Twitter, T underscore Woodbury. That's T underscore W O O D B U R Y. Or at the company at hitstrat.com, at hitstrat on Twitter. You can always find what we're doing there. Thank you, Terrence. And I cannot believe you came on my show and said Trump was a master marketer. That I will never forgive you for, but I do appreciate you coming on. Terrence Woodbury, owner and principal of Hit Strategies. Thank you so much, Adrian.